This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. It's hard to believe that we're at the end of another week already, but it's true, we are. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And as you know by now, this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about things that are going on in your life, questions about things that are going on in this world. Whatever's on your heart, all you need to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. There'll be a call now banner at the top of the screen. Just one touch will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. I always like the Friday program because I'm, I'm going to teach a Bible study tonight. We're going to have people here on Sunday. I told you about the good news that churches got here in Texas. There are no further restrictions uh, whatsoever about seating. So we're, we're likely not going to have to turn people away this weekend like we did last Sunday, and that's exciting. The other thing is, uh, it's Communion Sunday. It's the seventh of the month on Sunday. It's the latest it can possibly be for us, um, the first Sunday of the month. And uh, so we're really excited that we get to come back and have fellowship at the Lord's table with our church family. By the way, tonight, uh, my Bible study is like one of the ugliest Bible studies ever. The second half of Second Peter chapter 2, it's one of those that you would never, ever even try to teach if you weren't just teaching through the Bible. It's one of the advantages of teaching through the Bible. I can't avoid those that I want, but it's an ugly one. It's about false teachers. It's about um, their end, and, and it's, it's, it's just not pleasant. Necessary, I think it's important, but it's not pleasant. So uh, you might be able to pray for me that I might figure out a way to make this encouraging to some of the people who need to be encouraged. Uh, I'm one of those people today. There's not a study that is fun at all. Well, let's get to some questions while we um, wait for phone calls. We love your phone calls. Close the week with a rush here. Uh, This question comes from Andrew, and he says, What one book has influenced you more than any other? And I'm assuming you mean beyond the Bible, except uh, in in addition to the Bible. Um, Andrew, for me, it's easy because it's a book that changed the whole direction of my life and my ministry. When I was a very, very young Christian, I was going to a bunch of churches that were false teaching churches and learning a bunch of bad things. And um, I remember crying out to the Lord. You know, there was just something about some of that false teaching, and it just wasn't ringing true. Now, remember, I'd never read a Bible before I got saved, Andrew. So for me um, to, to, to uh, just listen to other Christians who all of them appeared to be experts compared to me. And so I was asking all kinds of questions. And, and does God really want me to be rich and all these other things? And while it didn't quite ring true, I didn't have any foundation with which to combat it. And um, I remember crying out to the Lord saying, look, I need to know what's true. If you want me to be rich, and that's who I wanted you to be, if you want me to be rich, well, then I, wanna, I just want to know. What I need to know is what's true. 
And that day, like all of the other days at that point in my life, I was spending the day at the Claremont School of Theology, which is maybe one of the two or three most liberal schools of theology in the United States. And by liberal, I don't mean that in a positive sense. They don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. They um, um, just sort of believe all of the wrong thing. But they had a great library, so that's what I used it for. And uh, I remember getting some books out to start my study, and there was on the table in the room that I was sitting in a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Andrew, that book changed my life. It's, it's Bonhoeffer's commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in particular. And I started reading it. I'm a guy, right now, the microphone here, I have a um, yellow legal pad out, and I had a brand new yellow legal pad. I filled the whole thing up with notes that day. I probably was there for eight to ten hours. I filled the entire thing up with notes. I remember going home to Paula, and I said, Paula, we really need to talk, because if what I think the Lord is showing me today is true, then nothing that we've been believing or hearing is true. And so that book, while it's not the best book I've read, it is the one that influenced me. It took my life and pivoted me and, and, and sent me in the right direction. So uh, that book is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. There's another book that was also, I know you only asked for one, but there's another one that remains, I think, one of my favorites of all time. It's by F.F. F. Bruce, and it's called The Heart of the Apostle Set Free, and it's about the, the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so uh, th- that book, Paul, as I've said on this program many times, is one of my absolute heroes, Andrew. And, and that book, I, I've recommended it hundreds, literally hundreds of times over the years. And uh, I, I just think it's, it's a, an outstanding primer on, on um, what it means to be called by God and to walk with God and to be faithful and persevere through difficulties and trials. So those are the two, Andrew. There's others that I really enjoy, of course, but uh, those are the two that have been uh, the most significant, I think, in my own personal walk with the Lord. Good question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. By the way, Andrew, uh, if you're looking for a book to study, um, along with the gospel accounts, um, there's no better book out there than a book called The Life and Times of the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. It's a difficult read. Uh, he was a brilliant man. So too is F.F. F. Bruce, by the way. Um, but it is an essential commentary to have for anybody who's studying through or wants to teach through the four gospel accounts. Here's a question from Will. He wants to know, are Mormons Christians? Will, no doubt there are some, a few who are. Um, you know, when you get into people in churches, different sort of religious groups, um, you know, there's always a bunch of people that don't really know what the religion they profess to belong to believes. And, um, you know, just like there are people who come to Calvary Chapel that don't really ever dig into their Bibles and, and don't really understand the doctrines of our faith. Well, and, and the same thing is true in the Mormon Church. There are some who hear Jesus, they believe in Jesus, and yet they don't know who Jesus is, at least in the teaching of the Mormon religion. Um... Let me be clear, Mormons, by and large, are not Christians. They don't have the right Jesus. That's what makes them a cult. So Mormons do not have the right Jesus. Uh, The Mormon Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, not the creator of all things, who said, let there be light, and there was light, the one who holds all things together. Uh, They believe that he was a created being rather than the creator. And see, if that's your Jesus, you don't have the Jesus that's capable of saving. Only God can forgive sins. That means if Jesus wasn't God, then he couldn't forgive our sins. Now, the problem with Mormons is that they use the same language. 
You talk to the Mormon elders who ride their bikes and knock on your door. They'll tell you things like, yeah, we believe that Jesus died for our sins. And we believe that only through Christ comes salvation. They'll talk about heaven. So they use the same language we use, but they have completely different meanings poured into those languages. So Mormonism is a cult, and um, overwhelmingly, most Mormons are not Christians. Now, they will recoil at that. They'll call themselves Christians. And by the way, they, they literally market themselves as the true path to real Christianity. They're good people. They're family-oriented. By and large, they're very conservative. I mean, we look at them and put our arm around a Mormon and say, brother... But the truth is, they've got the wrong Jesus, and it is evil to the core. Again, no doubt there are a few who don't know what they believe. They just hear Jesus say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He died for my sins. And they never get past that. I can say this, Will, if in fact um, there are real believers in Mormon churches, they don't stay long in those churches because the Holy Spirit will lead them out. So I hope that helps. You know, I've done a lot of ministry in Idaho over the years. Paul and I, um, for some unknown reason, we were real popular in Idaho for a very, very long time. And we would go out there and do conferences. We'd go out and speak in churches. And we had friends, and and, uh, they were always inviting us. And Idaho um, has, uh, per capita, the, the most dense population of Mormons in the United States. There are more Mormons in Utah, of course, but remember, Idaho's like much smaller in population. And um, one of the things that I found in all of our trips to uh, to Idaho was that there were tons and tons of ex-Mormons who'd become Christians, and the, the Calvary chapels in Idaho are all doing a really, really good job, and the churches are pretty good-sized churches, and and, um, you know, it, it's, it's, there's Mormons and there's Christians, but the Christians have picked Calvary Chapel. And uh, it's really great to see people who have had um, Jesus misrepresented to them find out the truth. And boy, do they become evangelists. And often what we'll see, Will, is, is uh, one Mormon in a family gets saved and then the rest of them will fall like dominoes. So... Um, we need to be able to share the truth with our Mormon friends. Hopefully we can make them our Mormon brothers and sisters. Here is a question sent in by Lauren. Um, Lauren says, Why did God pick circumcision as a sign of his covenant with Israel? We're going to have to ask God that when we get to heaven. Um, I'm certain that... Uh, Abraham asked God that question. Um, remember when, when Abraham, who was the first Jew, uh, Abraham was a grown man when he was saved, so circumcision for him and for his, his people was a lot different than circumcising an eight-day-old baby. Uh, it was painful, uh, uh, an excruciating cutting away of the flesh. Now, uh, I can only speculate, Lauren, because we don't know the answer. The, the, the why did God do this or why did God do that questions are questions that we won't get answers to until we don't need them. And that's when we're in heaven to be with the Lord. But I think personally, and this is just my opinion, it's, all, it's not of any greater value than your opinion, Lauren. But it is my opinion that um, God was painting in that important new picture. Uh, in order to come to Jesus, there has to be a painful cutting away of the flesh. And as we go down the corridor of time and space in the New Testament and, and we, we, we talk about circumcision and then we have our own born-again experience. And the truth is that when we say yes to Jesus, we have to painfully cut away some things that are of the flesh. Old friends, sometimes family members. Um, things that we like to do for fun. We have to say goodbye to those things because they no longer have any place 
in the life of a born-again Christian. So it's painful. It's painful. When I had to stop doing the things that I was doing before I got saved, I really believed, Lord, that I didn't... What was I going to do? I had friends that I had invested a lot in, and they in me, and, and suddenly I knew they weren't good for my walk. You know, Paul writes to the Hebrews, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We have to say goodbye to relationships that are immoral. And often those relationships with people we love, people we care deeply about. And cutting away the flesh is supposed to be painful. And I think, personally, that's the picture that God was giving us when, in fact, um, he chose circumcision as a sign of his covenant for his people, Israel. Good question. Let's go to the phone lines. I think we've got my friend Federico on line one. Federico, thanks for calling earlier on the air. How are you doing, Pastor? I'm doing well, Federico. How are you today? Good, good. Man, you have some wonderful uh, insights. And I want your perspective uh, on Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 10. That hit me like a ton of bricks. Let me let me get there, and I will get it for you. H-I. I know it's here. Okay, there it is. Isaiah 58, and you said the verses again, Federico? Uh, six through ten, Pastor. Okay, and, and I'll let do me it. hang up and listen. <laughs> thanks. For okay, thanks. Thanks a lot. God bless. You know, um, I. I uh, um, I, I taught Isaiah not too long ago on Wednesday nights. And Isaiah 58, of course, is the signature passage in our Bibles regarding fasting. And so um, when, when um, Isaiah is uh, declaring this prophecy from the Lord, uh, speaking for the Lord, and what he's saying, here's a true fast, a true fast, a real fast isn't going hungry for me. It's not denying yourself things. A true fast is to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of, of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Now, that's just verse 6 that Federico asked about. Now, I want you to think about something about this one sentence as it relates to what we're going on in our nation right now with uh, the outcry over the, the murder of, of uh, George Floyd. Um, our job as Christians... God says, deny your flesh, you serve me, loose the chains of injustice. We've got to be peacemakers, Christians. We've got to be men and women with no prejudice. We've got to be um, men and women who will stand up when there is injustice in the world. We've got to stand up for the little guy who can't stand for himself. We have to stand up for the oppressed. We've got to stand up um, for the widows and the orphans. You know, uh, in the Old Testament, they were on their own. Well, we've got a whole bunch of single moms and their kids. And we've got to take a stand for them. So he's just starting. Um, the, the, what precedes verse um, 6 is God sort of rebuking Israel for being... Uh, a nation of people that fasted and they cried out to God, I'm going to go hungry for you, God, but they were ignoring the weightier things according to the, the word of God in terms of love. So God says in the fifth verse, is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day? And in the Jewish calendar, only the day of atonement was mandatory day of fasting. Only a day for a man to humble himself? In other words, so you think that's a sacrifice? So he says, no, here's the kind of fast that I have chosen. Uh, and what, what's important about this, Federico, is this reveals the heart of God toward people who are oppressed, people who are enslaved by others. It forces us to look into our heart. God's saying, look, you can go hungry, but, but I'm not interested in you being hungry. I'm interested in the condition of your heart. How does your heart compare with God's heart for those who are oppressed when you see injustices in this world? 
It's really important. He says in the next verse, verse 7, Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? That's the kind of fast God wants. He wants you to, if you're going to do without food, make sure you give it to somebody who really has a need. And see, the important thing, when your heart is right with God, He's really going to answer your prayers. Look at how he answers it. It's the next verse. Verse 8, then. In other words, when your heart is right, when your heart is my heart, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly disappear, or quickly appear rather. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Now, you asked about verses 6 through 10, Federico. In verses 8 through 10, and then once again, in verse 14, the, the tense of the thens, then you're like, it's emphatic. The idea is in, in an instant, these promises will come to fruition. And, and truly, if, if we're fasting according to God's plan for fasting, uh, not just going hungry, not just denying ourselves some pleasure. The Bible talks about fasting in the New Testament, fasting of food, uh, fasting from sex in, in the marriage, but only for a time, he says. But the idea is really important because when your heart is right with God, the promises that come from your fasting will come to fruition in an instant. I, I love this picture of the glory of the Lord being our rear guard. It's one of the greatest sources of comfort in my life personally when I'm going through something that's difficult. I always imagine his arms around me, Federico, he's holding me steady, protecting me from behind. And what he's saying is, you want to enjoy the blessing of God, make sure your heart is my heart for the people that I love. I think we need to fast in a sense not so much from food, but we need to fast from satisfying our own needs at the expense of others. I think there's times when we need to see people who are in need and sacrifice things we have for their benefit. I think when that's our heart, then we're going to have prayers answered. He says in the next verse, verse 9, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Now, let me summarize this. Those are the verses that you asked about, Federico. But in summary, you know, we have a tendency to think, okay, God wants me to fast, so I'm going to go hungry. We have a whole religious tradition that just drives me crazy, Lent. What are you going to give up for Lent, people ask? Well, you're not giving up anything. At least nothing is going to satisfy God for 30 days if it's something you shouldn't be doing in the first place. So what God is saying is simply this. Get your heart right. Share your faith with others. Be willing to make sacrifices for other people. That's what he's telling his people Israel. And as I said, this is the authoritative chapter on fasting in the Bible. Uh, honestly, Federico, I'm not a big faster. I, I, I see no real value in depriving myself of, of food. Um, I, you know, I think too many of us, we, we fast for a few days and we sort of think God now is obligated to answer our prayers. Um, that's to miss the whole point of what fasting according to the heart of God is really all about. It describes a lifestyle of sacrifice. It describes a heart that's willing to put the needs of others ahead of yourselves. Jesus talked about that very thing. Finally, this is a message that our world needs to hear today. There would be no racial injustice if we all had this heart. It's that simple, that straightforward. So Federico, thanks for asking. I love Isaiah 58. I hope that helps you understand. 
340-9585. We're inside one minute now, so I don't really have a chance to answer another question on this side of the break. Um, if you have anything going on in your life, uh, we'd love to have the call, the opportunity to answer the question. Uh, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Remember that tonight I'm going to be teaching at Second Peter uh, chapter 2, beginning in the 10th verse through the end of the chapter. Uh, pray for me because it's really, really a difficult study. Uh, a study that's difficult for people to hear. Uh, something we'd rather not hear. And then on Sunday, uh, Communion Sunday, I'm going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our week. This is the Word of Santa for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back on the other side of the break. Don't have time to call into the Word to Stand On for Life? No problem. If you've got questions, you can email them to Pastor Ron at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. You know, my producer comes here every day and he'll, he'll open up his phone and say, well, today is national, this day or that day. And Paul is always saying, go to the food. Well, today, Paula, this is... Not for you, but answering your question. And I made him stop after this because it's the only day that matters. Today is National Donut Day. And donuts are like the best thing ever. So today is National Donut Day. Enjoy one and then call us at 340-9585 with your live calls and questions. Randy has a question. He says, Pastor Ron, what's the best way to convince a Christian that even believers face all kinds of trials. Randy, I don't know that you can convince people. Now, typically, you're talking about believers who are into the name it and claim it stuff. And, you know, if you just have enough faith, God wants you to be happy, wants you to be blessed, and he's going to take away all your problems. And they have a tendency to look at those of us who actually admit to having trials as though there's something wrong with us or something wrong with our faith. Um, but if they're honest, Randy, this is what I would say. Just look at your life. Look at the life of everyone that you know. Everybody has trials. They're common to all men. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation, and the word for trial is interchangeable there. No trial has come upon you except that which is common to man. In other words, everybody goes through it. Unfortunately, it says, and God is faithful. So we all go through all kinds of trials. And it's dishonest, which means it's sin to pretend that you don't go through those kind of trials. So I would just ask them to be realistic and share with them about the trials that you're going through and how God has shown off for you. Romans chapter 5, the kind of trials that produce real fruit in your life from the Lord. Those trials are designed, many of them, most of them in fact, by God himself. Because it's in the process of trials. Paul, who I think had pretty good faith, talks about sharing the fellowship of his, Jesus' sufferings. So all they have to do is open their Bibles, look at the experiences of people in this world, and perhaps you'll have the opportunity to introduce them to the real Jesus who had his own trials. We need only to read the suffering servant passages beginning in Isaiah chapter 50 um, uh, that, that deals specifically with Jesus. The things that he had to deal with. And again, I don't think anybody's going to question his faith. I don't think anybody's going to question his courage. Why is it, Randy, that we will believe these things? Now, you know, tonight uh, I'm going to be talking about false teaching. And the maddening thing for a pastor like me about false teachers is that their churches are absolutely full of people who are being misled. 
And the reason the churches are full is because our flesh really wants to be told that everything's going to be okay. One of the best-selling Christian books of the last 10 years was a book written by Joel Osteen. Live your best, or no, not live, it's your best life now. And that's antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Points him out as a false teacher. So, just tell him to open his eyes, look around. And he'll see that everybody, if he's honest, he'll admit that even he has his own trials and tests as well. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible, Randy, and it is maddening when I see the damage that false teaching does to people. Damien says, Do you think it is a sin to be afraid of the coronavirus? Um, no, Damien, it's not a sin to be afraid. You know, I'm afraid of the flu. I'm afraid of, of um, bee stings. I'm allergic to them. It's, being afraid is a part of our natural humanity. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of all kinds of things. And to, to pretend like you're not afraid is simply to live in denial. Now, we're to live in self-denial, but we're never to live in denial. And so we need to understand what being afraid is and then how to deal with it. So while it's not a sin to be afraid, even though Jesus said, do not be afraid, do not worry, all those exhortations, it's not a sin to worry. It's a sin when that worry or that fear keeps you from being obedient to the Lord. You know, when you have a calling and you take a step of faith and then you sort of shrink back because it doesn't turn out the way you thought it would and you're afraid of making the wrong choices or, or, or the enemy is there and he's huffing and puffing and threatening to kill you, you know, you, you can't give in. You've got to press on. It's one of the things that Paul says trials produce perseverance. And so we've got to understand, yes, I'm afraid, but I'm not going to let this fear paralyze me. I'm going to keep walking with Jesus. And Damien, honestly, there's so many times when I'm walking so close to Jesus, I figuratively sort of have my hand over my eyes with a little tiny opening so I can see just a little bit, but I'm afraid of what's coming next. But I'm pushing in so closely to Jesus, I'm so closely with Jesus, that I'm not going to let that fear keep me from experiencing everything that he has for me. And I think what we've got to learn is how to deal with fear instead of pretending it doesn't exist or being unwilling to admit it's there. I think the Lord is way more pleased, Damien, when we'll just say, Lord, I'm going to do this. You know I'm terrified, but I trust you. I think that puts the biggest smile on Jesus' face we can imagine. So no, it's not a sin to be afraid of the coronavirus. I think with all of the onslaught of the media we've had regarding this COVID-19 virus, um, I think it would be unnatural not to have a healthy fear. We want to be careful. We want to exercise caution. At the same time, we're all called to serve God. Can I take this as an opportunity, not for you, Damien? I don't know you, but just for everybody out there. Even for those of you who are fearful of gathering back again in your churches, don't let that fear stop you. Be cautious. If you want to wear a mask, wear a mask. If you want to keep your distance from people, if you don't want to be hugged in church, you don't want to shake hands with people in church, that's okay. But remember to go. Not just in our church, but in lots of churches. This is Communion Sunday. How would you feel if fear kept you from partaking of communion? With the body of believers. That's, that's what it is. It's such a wonderful, wonderful gift. So don't let fear keep you home. Don't rationalize, and by now it's really easy to do it. Well, you know, I watch online. I never miss a Bible study or something. All that's okay. But, but we're called to assemble together in person 
we are the church. We're called to use the gifts that God has given us to minister to others. And it's okay for a little fearful. Just don't let being afraid keep you from doing what God wants you to do. Thank you. I appreciate the call, or the question, rather. I do have a call now. Cindy from San Antonio on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You are on the radio. Hi, Ron. You know, when you were talking about uh, Pacific Ocean Park yesterday, I I had to laugh. (laughs) Well, I grew up in Venice Beach and Topanga Canyon, so I went on that poster as, as a kid a hundred times and I was a real skinny little thing back then so I almost flew out of that out of that roller coaster a bunch of times because all I had was that bar and it was kind of heavy mm-hmm. to down but it didn't lock in place so it kind of flopped up as you know as you're riding that thing so I didn't know I was going to tell that story last night I, I don't know what possessed me to tell it but that's the last roller coaster ride I've ever been on because it almost killed me. So, yeah, I, 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 you couldn't give me enough money to get on a roller coaster nowadays at all. <laughs> but you know what I'm curious about is now I missed the study before last Wednesday. I don't, I don't know what happened, but um, I did miss it. And I do plan on listening to it online. But I'm curious about, I guess, the time between Babel. And the Tower of Babel, and then when um, Abraham was called, there must have been a long time, and, and nobody was following God, maybe, or knew about him, because Abraham was, you know, raised with a bunch of idols. So he's going along, and God talks to him, and he builds this altar. It, it says um, in in chapter 12, mm-hmm. um Okay, seven, verse seven. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And what I'm curious about is the altar. I'm, I'm wondering what it looked like, and did God tell him to sacrifice on it? Because it doesn't say anything like that. It's just that he built an altar there. And then he left. So I don't know if they left the altar there or, you know, what, what he did, did at the altar. And it's just something that struck me when I was reading the other morning. It kind of, it kind of, um, made me curious so that's yep. it and i'll and i'll listen listen on on the radio bye thank you bye cindy thank you for the question you know um i'm going very very slowly through abraham's life there's so much for us to learn from i only did five verses in chapter 12 uh last night or not last night but but wednesday night and uh, one of the things that we'll read cindy as we go through is that the, the word alter is a, a characteristic of Abraham's life. Now, altars were for worship. And so th- there are altars that, that literally accompany Abraham everywhere he goes. And what it means is that God gave Abraham a, a heart to worship. Abraham was so grateful that, that he couldn't help worshiping God. Now, the way you worship God was to offer something. Now, it doesn't always mean that something died on the altar. Uh, I believe, it, at least in, in verse 7 that you spoke about, that there wasn't a physical blood sacrifice, uh, but but it could have been, been any kind of other. Remember, the law hadn't been given yet to delineate what kind of sacrifices and, and what type of worship um, uh, festivals and feasts were, were to, be, um, to, to, to be continued. Um, but but Abraham um, just couldn't help but to worship God, and he would do that by building an altar. And the altar would have been made of rocks, just like uh, when Joshua uh, put up a, an altar of rocks in the Jordan River um, on on both sides, one one in the middle actually, one on the side going in. It, it, they're they're altars of remembrance, and they would worship God, and that simply means. Uh, they, they were grateful to God and they cried out with thanksgiving to the Lord. Uh, they didn't have electric guitars and drums and and, and keyboards, um, but they worshipped God. And Abraham would set up these rocks and often there would be a sacrifice. You know, we, we, we equate music in our culture with worship. It's the worship time. And we sing love songs to the Lord. Um, but but the whole idea of worship, and almost always in the Old Testament, when you talk about worship, something dies. Uh, 
and and the whole purpose of our worship is we're singing songs to the Lord ought to be to die to die to our flesh to offer our bodies as living sacrifices so that's what Abraham's life was characterized by a great thing if you go to heaven and Jesus said you know you were always worshiping me you always had a great heart man that's a good thing to be known in heaven for and that's exactly what Abraham did. Now, we're going to see in his life all kinds of live sacrifices. Um, um, God accepts some of the sacrifice by consuming them with fire. Um, but, but worship was a true characteristic of Abraham's life. Uh, so I'm going to continue going slow through Abraham's life, uh, Cindy. But next week, on Wednesday, um, in fact, I just finished that study today, this morning, so uh, next week, we're going to finish chapter 12, and then we're going to see that he's going to continue this pattern of offering worship to the Lord. Sometimes something will die. Um, most times, in fact, I think this first time that you spoke about from last Wednesday night study um, was, was probably just an, an offering of praise, just, just worshiping the Lord. Thank you, Cindy. Good question. Here is a question from, let me find it here. This one is from George. Why are there different interpretations of Bible verses when we all have the same Holy Spirit? Well, George, the answer is while the Bible is perfect, the Word of God is without error, we have very imperfect hearts and minds. We have different motives, you know. Too often we're not looking for exactly this, for the, for the truth with the right motivation. Um, and so we're, we're imperfect. All I can, that's about the only answer that makes any sense is we're looking at a perfect Word of God through imperfect lenses. Um, you know, sometimes I'll say something, well, the Bible clearly says, and somebody says, well, I don't agree with that. And you're right, it's the same verse, we've got the same Holy Spirit, but I think we really have to be, using the Bible's language, workmen, workwomen, rightly dividing the Word of God. And I think sometimes we just don't. We look at a Bible verse through our own, the lens of our own lives. We wanted to say something. I remember as a, as a new believer listening to false teachers tell me that God wanted me to be rich, He wanted me to be healthy, He wanted me to be happy, all those things. And I would look at a Bible verse that they would take out of context and, and I could make sense out of that. Well, they, God does want me to be rich. Um, but as you grow in the Lord, as you spend time rightly dividing the Word, then you're going to get more direction. You know, George, I don't know how, where you are in your walk with the Lord, how long you've been a believer. But... Um, one of my pet peeves is when people, and it's usually young Christians, who say, well, to me it means this. It doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what the author intended to say. We have to think about who he was writing to, what he wanted them to learn, and then we can say, okay, how can I use that in my life? But we can't take it out of context and come up and make a promise. You know, with without context, you can make the Bible say virtually anything you want it to say. So we just have to be careful. Lord, I want to know the truth. What do you want to say to me in this passage? I think if we would study to show ourselves approved, George, I think we would find ourselves with a lot more consistency in terms of the interpretations we come up with, and the Bible would make a lot more sense. We need to have solid hermeneutics. That's the interpretation of, of literature, but in this particular case, the Bible. And we need to understand that the Word is consistent. So remember, the Word is perfect. Our understanding of it is imperfect. 340-9585. We've got some time left here in the program this week. Jennifer says, I know that boasting is bad, so how can you explain Paul's boasting in his letter to the Corinthians? Jennifer, you're talking about Second Corinthians. And Paul is, is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit now. Remember this. He's communicating via letter 
we are simply able to eavesdrop on what those letters say. We're reading somebody else's mail, but it's because God intended it for the whole world. And when Paul is boasting in his ministry, he's boasting really to defend his ministry. He's coming under attack in Corinth by certain people who don't like the restrictions that he placed on him in, uh, placed on them in, in the first letter to, to the Corinthians. You know, there were people in Corinth, as there are people in every church. Well, you know, he says that, but I don't agree. And they didn't want to stop sinning. They wanted people to follow them, whatever their motive was. Paul, in writing to the churches in Philippi, he said, you know, some preach Christ out of goodwill, others out of evil. Their intent is to harm me. But he says, what do I care? I rejoice that the gospel of Christ is going forward. So when people are attacking your ministry, in this case, Paul's ministry, he's simply saying, look, I'm not going to boast in me, but I'm going to boast in what the Lord has done. Now, there's something else in there, Jennifer, I want you to catch as you're reading through that. He continually is sensitive to the fact that he is boasting in the Lord. He says, I'm out of my mind to sound like this. I don't know why I'm boasting. And then he'll explain to you, not boasting in me, but in what God has done. And and he's clearly uncomfortable about having to boast. But remember, he's an apostle. He is the spiritual father, the founder of the church in Corinth. And he's jealous for them with a godly jealousy. So he's not boasting to advance his own cause. He's not boasting so that people will say, you know, I'm sorry, I should never have said anything about the Apostle Paul. He's boasting, defending his ministry because he doesn't want the wolves in Corinth to have their way. And uh, I think he does it with great sensitivity. And um, I, I actually enjoy the fact that he's really, really uncomfortable. You know, Jennifer, uh, kind, of, kind of related subject. You know, when you're a, a Bible teacher and at the end of studies, people will come up or they'll send you emails and they'll tell you things, you know, God is speaking right to me through you, though it was the best message ever, those kind of things. And it's honestly really embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. Because while they're complimenting you, you know that this is just what the Holy Spirit did. I've had people compliment me and thank me for a message for saying something that I didn't even say in the message. It's because the Holy Spirit was speaking to them. And so when somebody is being really complimentary, it's really uncomfortable. And honestly, and I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but honestly, you just want them to go away. You say, thank you. I usually say something like, well, you know, that, that the Lord spoke to your heart says a lot more about your heart than it does about my Bible teaching. So, so boasting is bad unless God is getting all of the glory. And one of the things that we do from time to time, we share the story of our lives because we want people to see the power of God. He did this for me. He did this through my life. And, and it's not boasting in us, it's boasting simply in the power of God. Good question, Jennifer. Thank you. Second Corinthians is an unbelievable letter. Um, I'm going to be in First and Second Timothy for a while yet on Sundays, but I'm going to go to First Corinthians um, next on Sundays. I've taught that many times, but haven't taught it on a Sunday here at Calvary Chapel yet, so we're going to do that next. Here's a question from Amy. Do I have a caller? Holding? No? Okay. Amy says, how can I best apply the Sermon on the Mount in my life? Amy, this is a question that people have been struggling with since Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. I can only imagine that when Jesus was saying those things, the audience was shaking their head saying, is this guy crazy? How can we do that? Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Just all of those things. Um, I, I think the, the thing that we can best take from the Sermon on the Mount is how helpless and hopeless we are apart from Christ. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, now this was the intent of the law too, the Sermon on the Mount just sort of jacks up the stakes. 
I think when we hear the Sermon on the Mount, we ought to fall on our face and say, God, I can't do these things. There's no way I can live this way apart from your power, apart from your strength. So I think the best application of the Sermon on the Mount is to understand how desperate we are to be in the presence of the Lord. If we get out of his presence and we get a little bit behind him, or God forbid, a little bit ahead of him, then we're going to mess up. And I think Jesus raised the stakes. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, and he always makes it more difficult. And the whole point in the Sermon on the Mount is not that we would do those things, but rather that we would be with the one who can. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But Paul wrote, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So I think that's the choice that the Sermon on the Mount sets up for us, Amy. I, I just think it's it's one of those things where we have to say, God, I, I can't breathe without you. I need you for every little thing. And if that's your takeaway from the Sermon on the Mount, then what you'll do is hold on to Jesus for dear life. And Amy, I think that's the best application for chapels, the word to stand on for life with Well, don't know what happened there. That was a mistake, but I think well, where are we in time? Yeah, just about. Okay. We're just about at the end of the program, so I don't have time to take another question. Remember this weekend as you go to church, um, partake of communion if your church is doing it on, on the first Sunday of the month. I expect that God is gonna meet you there. Be willing to be used by the Lord for whatever he has for you. You've been listening to the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, we'd love to see you. I'll be back next week at, uh, on Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630. And for now, I think we're done. God bless you. See you next time. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.